sometimes the problem is when trying to learn a topic is that identifying what is written and then finding things which isn't written. So finding things which isn't written is always more interesting. I know, I know that I'm getting ahead of myself. I don't know how far we're going to get today. So let's just begin. We're still in the month of Tevet, and coming up is the month of Shvat. Tuba Shvat is coming up. So I just wanted to start, because how can you not, with the famous song, Hashkediya Parachat. So if you notice the song, there's a focus to it, and that's part of what I wanted to identify. Hashkediya Parachat. So by the way, that's talking about a tree. Hashkediya Parachat. Vashemesh Paz Zarachat. Sipurim Erosh Kol Gag. Vivasrot Et Bo Hachag. Tu Bishvat Higiya Chag Ilanot. So part of the question with all this is, is how much of this is actually correct? Which means, is Tu Bishvat, in fact, the Chag Ilanot? And I'll just go a little bit further. We know that one of the customs in Israel is to plant trees on Tu Bishvat. So how old is that custom? Where does that custom come from? Because planting a tree would actually be appropriate if it were a holiday for the trees. But one of the things that we'll see as we proceed, that it may actually not be a holiday for the trees. I'm starting, again, not in the Gemara, because we're going to have a problem, what the Gemara says, what it doesn't say. And we're starting with a book which is called Hamawadim Bahalacha. I think back in the day it was pretty popular. I have no idea how much it is today. It was written by Rav Zevin. Rav Zevin was himself a Chabad Chassid. He was uh, incredibly knowledgeable about all kinds of things. You see, he lived from 1886 to 1978. And Hamawadim the various holidays in Halacha. So he gets up to Shvat, to Tu B'Shvat. He writes, Minhag miyuchad Tu ashkenazim perot ilanot. There is an Ashkenazic custom to eat from the fruits of the tree. Okay, so that's one thing. Mark that down. To eat from the fruits of the tree. What he means by Ashkenazim over here is not exactly clear. The only hint I'll give to all this is that he has this in quotations. So the quote that he has it from is from the Magin of Ram. Right? If you look at number 51 on the bottom, is from the Magin of Ram. The problem is the Magin of Ram is quoting it from someplace else. So in order to know what this means we really would have to look at the source of the Magen Avram, which, as I said, we're getting ahead of ourselves. And I don't know why he wrote Ashkenazim. Well, the answer, I, I don't even understand the question. I, I know the answer. The answer is because he's quoting. He's quoting somebody who wrote that. So who was who, who wrote this? Again, we're going to come back to this. Dome, he seems, seems to me, Rav Zevin writes, that Sfaradim do this more than Ashkenazim. And now he's quoting, So he quotes over here against source 52, is from the Luach of Eretz Yisrael, where it says what the custom is. And this is really interesting, because the people who write the calendars, back certainly in the day, would have great control on what the custom is, because they would write a calendar together with all the customs. So it says, on this day, this is what you do. So now you know this. But who wrote that calendar, and where did he get this from? And why does he think that this is the custom? But you realize there's some kind of a ritual over here. Of course the question then is, why is there this ritual? But notice something also, that this ritual that he's talking about is focusing on the fruits, not on the trees. I know you can tell me that fruits and trees are obviously connected to one another, but they're not obviously connected to one another, because one is a focus on the tree and one is a focus on the fruit. So that already is going to lead me to ask the question, is, okay, Tubishvat, is it a holiday of the trees or a holiday of the fruit? And don't tell me they're the same, because they're not necessarily the same. You know why? Because one is the fruit and one is the trees. So in the song, it's Tubishvat, Yihachagli Ilanot. So I question, is that really true? Does, is it about trees? and therefore planting trees and so on? Or is it a holiday about the fruits? And therefore the custom of eating the fruits may seem to be more appropriate. So essentially we so far have, have bumped into two different customs. One is planting trees, which again, we didn't see anybody say it yet. Another is eating the fruits. And there we have this question because we know that we see Ashkenazim did it, but we see that Sephardim in at least this Luach, they were told to do it together, creating some kind of a ritual. And there is a special book about this called Sefer Pre Eitz Hadar. The, 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 the book about the 
literally the pre-Eitz Hadar, about the fruit of the Hadar, for who said there to Bishvat. Now, the word seder over here is really similar to a seder for Pesach. Right, but he means over here a se- like a seder. That there, was a se- that there is a book about this, which is the seder to Bishvat. Now, have, have any of you ever heard before there is such a thing called a seder to Bishvat? Or you've never heard it before, this is the first time you're saying it. So I can guarantee you, or assure you, that it's, it's pretty popular and becomes more popular as time goes on. And my question would be, so where did this come from? So, unlike you, I'm suspicious. Which means, who one day decided that there's a Seder Tubishvat? I can assure you it's not in the Gemara. It's not even in the Rishonim. In this case, it's not even mentioned by the Shulchan Aruch. Who made this custom? Where does it come from? Who wrote the Priyat Sadar? Shenalgubo Rabim Yurei Hashem V'choshvei Shemo. And this is the custom of many people who are God-fearing and important people and so on. And in 53, he quotes also a... Uh, well, he actually just quotes the addition. Likut mikola mikalot b'mikrav v'mishnah v'talmud v'zor shemudubar behem al perot v'tevot ilanot. And in this book, it quotes all the places in the Mishnah, in, in, in the Scripture, in the Mishnah, in the Gemara, in the Zohar, where it speaks about fruit and wheat and trees. Chasidim, so I told you from the beginning that Rav Zevin himself is a Chassid, he says from the custom of the Chassidim, we find, And we're told that Tubishvat is the perfect time to pray for a beautiful etrog. So again, it's a holiday of trees, fruits, whatever, so it's a great day to to pray for this. So, of course, where did, he quotes over here, source 54, the B'nai Yisachar, or B'nai Yisachar, which is a uh, Hasidic book on the various holidays, goes month by month. V'shuv, and furthermore, he, he quotes, Hayut tzadikim shelovshim bigdei yom tov bitu b'shvat, ki hu rosh hashana le'ilanot v'adam eitzasadeh. And there were, moreover, there were people, chassidim, here he's quoting also from a Hasidic source, who would wear their holiday garb. Why? Because it's Rosh Hashanah for the trees, and man is like a tree from the field, so in a certain sense it's Rosh Hashanah for men. Now, all of this is very nice. Maybe. See, I don't, again, I don't, I don't know what you personally think to do with all of these things, because he's mentioning Hasidic customs, he's mentioning... Kabbalistic customs. Anytime it says that there was a ritual and they would read the Zohar and so on. So it's Kabbalistic customs. And he is saying, okay, and this is Rosh Hashanah in a sense. So if, if Tu B'Shvat really were all these things, we should see evidence about this long before Tu B'Shvat ever existed. So therefore, I just use this as a way, again, our song as an introduction and then this as an introduction. And now let's start going the other way around. Let's start from the beginning. And that's the mission Rosh Hashanah. Arba Rosh Hashanahim. There's four different... How do you say Rosh Hashanah in plural? I don't want to say Rosh Hashanahs. You know, I don't want to say that. There are four different... Rosh Hashanahim. Now, now, for those of us also, that just seems a little strange awkward. In our lives, you have the beginning of the school year. That's, in a sense, a Rosh Hashanah. You have, you have the beginning of the tax year. You have the beginning of the baseball season. You have the, I mean, I'm just saying, in our lives, there's all kinds of days that are demarcations for the beginning or for the end of the year. So therefore, we're used to, modern man lives with multiple calendars. So this itself should not be all that strange. So the Mishnah says there's four Rosh Hashanahs. One, Be'echad b'nisan Rosh Hashanah l'malchim l'urgalim. That kings count their years in Malchut when it comes to Rosh Hashanah in the month of Nisan. Now, one of the things we also should know is that there is this always this tension in Judaism between Nisan and Tishrei. Because Nisan is described as the first month. Our Rosh Hashanah, our real Rosh Hashanah, if I'll call it that, is on the seventh month. So how can the Rosh Hashanah be on the seventh month? On top of everything else, in classic Judaism, which we don't necessarily live by today, the agricultural year is incredibly important. So therefore, if it says that the beginning of the year is in 
Tishrei will just remember, sorry, is in Nisan, just remember something about Nisan, that Nisan is the spring, and the spring is when things start to grow. Everything comes back to life, and things are growing in the springtime. So to use the springtime as the beginning, and of course, theologically, it's also the beginning of the Jewish people, so this should not be the biggest surprise. So let's again read the Mishnah. So therefore, your yearly tax in terms of giving a tenth by the animals, that starts with Elul, but No, that's the first of Tishrei. For years, so it becomes 5,700 and change on in Tishrei, even though the kings count in the spring, that happens in the fall. Now notice also, Shemitah and Yovel are both things which are connected to agriculture. So there is such a thing as a sabbatical year. There's a larger um, system which is called the Jubilee year. All that begins in the Rosh Hashanah in Tishrei. Nitya, what does that mean? It means planting. But it means planting something very specific. It means planting trees. So Rosh Hashanah for planting trees is Rosh Hashanah, is, is Tishrei. So you now realize that Tu Bishvat, which we haven't gotten up to yet, can't be the Rosh Hashanah for planting trees. And what difference does it make, Rosh Hashanah for planting trees? So the answer is it has to do with something which is called Orla, which means fruit from a tree for the first three years can't be eaten. So how do you know if a tree is three years old? So there's a demarcation. It's not that you count from the day that it was planted. It has to do with the year. So therefore, if it was planted in Elul, there's also a little further complication how long it takes for the roots to take. But let's just say you planted it on the first day of Elul. It comes to the first day of Tishrei. One month later, you count one year. That's one year already. So if that's the Rosh Hashanah for trees... So then why would I consider Tubishvat to be the Rosh Hashanah of trees? And imagine all the confusion for all the people that are planting trees on Tubishvat, if they're fruit trees, then they're not considered to be one year old on next Tubishvat, they're one year old already on next Tishrei. So again, you realize why all of this could be more complicated than it needs to be, but that's only because of the misinformation which is there. So, Ilan. So now our distinction is going to be, hold it, Ilan is a tree. So like all the other things that we have between Beit Hill and Beit Shammai, so now we find that when is the New Year's Le'ilan, but Le'ilan is opposed to Nitiyah. So what does it mean for Ilan? Ilan is a tree, and Nitiyah is a tree which is planted. So what's the difference between a tree which is planted as opposed to a tree? So what is there about a tree that a th- something just planted may not have? And what's the answer? Fruit. So Rashi writes in source number three, Linatia, Liminyan Shne Orla. So that should not have come as a surprise to you. Why? Because I already said it. That when it talks about Nitya planting trees, that's in terms of counting the years for Orla. End of Elul, it's one year. The Gemara is going to explain all of these dates. Uli Rakot, Ulama Aser Yerakot, Shainter Masri, Mina Nilkat, Lefne Roshana, Al Shel Achar Roshana. So when it comes to taking Truma, you don't take from one year to the other. Demarcation is Rosh Hashanah. Le'ilan, Rosh Hashanah for the trees, which is now either the Rosh Chodeshvat or Tubishvat. Linyan Maaser, Shain Maasrin Perota Ilan, Shachantu Kodem Shvat, Al Shachantu Laacher Shvat. Shabi Ilan Holech Achar Chanata. Now, what did he mean by shechantu ochanta? What, what is exactly the issue? The issue is there's various stages when a fruit is formed on a tree. So what he's saying is that when it comes to vegetables, you, vegetables is based upon picking a vegetable. Whenever you pick the vegetable, it's at that point obligated with trumat and ma'asrot. So things you picked before Rosh Hashanah, you don't take trumat together with after Rosh Hashanah. They're separate years. But when it comes to the fruit, it's not based upon when it's picked. It's based on when the fruit forms on the tree. So that's the chanata. So over here, what is he saying? That the break-off for taking truma on a fruit tree is tu bishvat, so fruits formed before 
the truma should be taken before the truma should be taken separately than things which are formed afterwards. So you now realize when it says ilan, it really should say, or you should make believe that it says not ilan, but rather perota ilan. So therefore, when is Rosh Hashanah for the trees? Answer: Regular Rosh Hashanah, and therefore, in terms of the Lords of Orla, Shemitah, Yovel. When is Rosh Hashanah for Perota Ilan, at which point is a demarcation between the previous year and the next year, that is Tu Bishvat or Rosh Chodeshvat, and that is based upon Chanata. Good. Source number four, Rashi's clear in the Gemara a little further on, Batar Chanata, Lakaman, Tanalav Epirkin, Ilan Shechantu Perotav, Kodem Chamisha, Sar Bishvat, Shehu Rosh Hashanah Lianot, Mitaser, you do the Maaser, Lishanasha Avra. So it just goes on when the fruit is formed, and this is about Peirota Ilan. I hope that's com- sufficiently clear at this point. Rosh Hashanah Ilan, the Bartanur, Source 5, writes, Linyan Ma'aser Peirot, She'in Ma'asrim Peirot Ilan Shechantu Kodum Shevat Al Shechantu La'ach Shevat To be Ilan as Linen Batar Chanata, when it comes to trees, that it's before the Chanata. And again, I just hope that all of this is completely clear. Another Gemara, which continues in Rosh Hashanah a number of pages later, which I think resonates a little bit more, maybe we're familiar with this. Everyone's judged in Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is Yom Hadin. By the way, if it's Yom Hadin, then why do we need a whole bunch of Rosh Hashanahs? So Gemara says, All that you know, Devariv Meir. So listen to this opinion. Bipesach al hatfua. Bipesach, sorry, ba'atzeret al pirota ilan. Can somebody tell me why in the world pirota ilan are now? I hope you appreciate the confusion. What did pirota ilan have to do with atzeret? What do you do on atzeret? You remember the terrible Dvar Torah that people say every year that on Chag Atzeret, Shavuot, there's no mitzvah to do, all you do is learn Torah? Well, there is a mitzvah. What's the mitzvah to bring? Bikurim. What are Bikurim? The first fruits. What do you do with the first fruits? You bring them to Yishalayim. What do you say when you bring it? You say a particular formula. Do you know what the formula is? You, it's actually, we adopted it. And we say th- we use it on Pesach as well, and that is, it's the Arami Oved Avi, is what you would say in Parashat Kitavo when they come to Jerusalem, they come up to the Beit Hamikdash with their new fruits. So therefore, so what he's saying is, oh, on, is that we're judged or sealed of the judgment for the fruits on on Chagatzeret. By the way, I would then venture to say, so that's the day to pray for your etrog. Meaning, where do you get to pray for your etrog on uh, on? Uh, but why should I argue with anyone? This is echoed further by Rava. Which means that's why we bring the Omer. What we start the whole thing with the Tuvua on Pesach. So, what, what can I do? Even though we find these later sources, which part of what troubles me is where do these sources come from? These later sources are telling us that, oh, Tu Bishvat is this day. It's this day by, you know, some people, it's Chag Ilanot, planting the trees, and some people, it's about the fruits. It's about uh, praying for your fruits, praying for your etrog, um, saying all these mystical passages. Source number seven, we could have brought from the Gemara. This was just easy and clear and accessible for me. Echod um, bishvat or tu bishvat rov shana. That according to the Gemara, most of the rain from the year has fallen by tu bishvat. Essentially, we're moving. It's the second half of winter, and we're moving towards spring. First half to half of winter, and I, I can't tell you if anybody ever did a scientific study on this, but that it says it's half, the winter's halfway over. Of course, in a year like this, when we have two adars, which is going to have to be a topic for us soon. When we have two Adars, then how does that impact Tu Bishvat? Because did we just add to spring or did we add to the winter? Source 8 you don't need and source 9 you don't need because you already know it. Okay. Moving post-Talmud to source number 10. This is... Now, when you mentioned before that you want to learn and use a Gemara itself... Yeah, you need, you, need, you need all the things. So one of the commentaries in the back is the Mordechai. 
The Mordechai, we'll, we'll read because this is unfortunately not untypical. Rav Mordechai ben Hillel, a descendant of the Ravya, was one of the great rabbis of Germany, Ashkenazi, the end of the Tosfot period. Great. So this is important because he also is going to not just talk about the theoretical, the questions that come up, he's going to give lots of answers and customs. At the end of those, born around 1240, Rav Mordechai was martyred in 1298 with his wife, the daughter of Echiel of Paris, a name that you should recognize now from the other class, with their five children in Nuremberg, Germany, also a place that you should recognize. And unfortunately, I'll say it again, this is not untypical. Lots of the Baliotos vote. It's amazing that, that they even survived because of the various attacks. Rav Mordechai was a disciple of the Maharam of Wurttemberg, who spent the last number of years of his life in prison after he was arrested, as was his relative, the Rav Asher the Rosh, and his brother-in-law, Rav Meir Cohen, author of the Goat Mamoniot. Among his other mentors was Rav Peretz, who you should recognize as well at this point, and his relative of Ephraim of Yaakov Levi of Spine of Avram ben Baruch, the older brother Maharam. So his work, and I go Mamoniot, and now you see there's a connection, is pretty similar. They will bring the Ashkenazi custom. So listen to what he writes about Tubishvat. Now, I don't know if you know about this, but on Monday, on Monday and Thursdays, we say a longer Tachanun. We read the Torah on those days. And why do we say a longer Tachanun? These are considered to be days of judgment. So if you're going to institute fast days, the best day to institute a fast day would be on a Monday and a Thursday. Sometimes they would institute a fast day, three of them, Monday, Thursday, and Monday, because something bad was going on. So therefore, they instituted fast days. Now, you also realize, living in the times that they lived, in the situations that they lived, the necessity sometimes of fasting because bad things were happening was unfortunately also not this totally rare occurrence. So he says there's a community that asked, they want to do a fast day, Monday, Thursday, and Monday. Now, that Monday, Thursday, Monday is going to bump into Tu B'Shvat. Is it okay to fast on Tu B'Shvat? Now, we're not talking about a Hasidic Rebbe wearing his Hasidic clothing. He's asking, are you allowed to fast? Is it is Tu B'Shvat a day that you can fast? And he writes, Should we consider it like a Rosh Hashanah, which is generally days that we celebrate, or not? See, if it were Rosh Chodesh, it would be easier. But being that we hold like Beit Hillel, that Tu Bishvat is on, sorry, that, that the holiday Rosh Chodesh Ilan is on the 15th, not on the 1st. So the question comes up, and he writes, He goes, my gut feeling is, and what do you get from this? That he has no hard evidence there's no clear precedent. He doesn't really know, but it's a, it's a feeling. What does that mean? My, I feel that one, the way that we should lean on this, I feel, Now don't be fooled. The word Shabbat in rabbinic literature sometimes means Saturday, the holiday, or the festive Shabbat, and sometimes it means week. Here he means next week. You should, you should push it over the Shabbat Abba to the next week. He says, it seems to me that it's enough of a Rosh Hashanah that you shouldn't have a fast day. Now, notice something. He says, it seems to me this should be no different from all the other Rosh Hashanahs, but all the others were on Rosh Chodesh. So if we were sitting there together with the Mordechai, we could counter-argue with him. We could say, well, maybe they're not the same. Maybe the others are on Rosh, are, maybe the others being on Rosh Chodesh, it, make, it gives it a little bit more stature, and this one has a little bit less, so maybe the comparison's unfair. And I think that's why he says, it seems to me, the fact that they're all compared, and he says, best to push off the fast to another day. So here we have evidence of somebody who's grappling. It's not like he's 100% sure. He's grappling, what, what's the nature of this day? And he says, it seems to me that maybe we, should be, we shouldn't fast on this day. You want to make up a fast day, push it off to the next week. Source number 11. Now just note the dates. The Mordechai is 1240-1298. 
The next is the Maharil, 1360, 1427. Now, even though I'd venture a guess that you've never heard of the Maharil before, would I be correct? The Maharil is a major player when it comes to Ashkenaz custom. Born in Mainz, Germany, 1360, 1427, a lot of what we have as Ashkenaz custom comes from the Maharil, and listen to what he writes. First, he quotes something which is a little bit more Kabbalistic, Shabbat Melech. Mishum de Chamisha Asarbo, who Rosh Hashanali Ilanot, who Chalbe Koyom, it could come out on any day of the week. Me Echadi Meashavua, Milvad, Aleph, and Vav. He's just giving you some inside information how our calendar is made up that Tubishvat will never come out in our calendar on a Sunday or on a Friday. So you can try that. You can, you can wow your friends with that little piece of information. That that's the way our calendar is. Where Tubishra can't be on a Sunday or on a Friday. And he says, and we don't say Tachanun on that day. Now, the other Rosh Hashanahs, which are all in Rosh Chodesh, of course you don't say Tachanun. But what about on Tubishvat? It's not Rosh Chodesh. Do you say Tachanun or not? Do you fast or not? So these questions, as you see, are questions which are being grappled with, which where the answers are not obvious. And he writes, Bimagensa, which is a place in German, Uververmeiza, Omer Tchina. He goes, there are places that I know of that they say Tachanun on those days. So even this opinion that he's sharing with us, oh, I don't think you should say Tachanun, he's telling you his opinion. But you, you do realize now that the question of the nature of Tu Bishvat is one which is not that clear. Are you allowed to fast on the day? You don't fast. Well, it seems that you don't fast. Are you, do you say Tachanun or don't? So what do you find? Depends which town you lived in. Some towns in Germany they did, and some towns they didn't, which means there's no uniformity, there's no clear custom, there's no clear laws on what you do. But we saw two sources saying that maybe you should treat this like any other Rosh Hashanah, but you know it's not like Rosh Hashanah. How do you know it's not really like Rosh Hashanah? Well, I'm not being fair now. It's not like Rosh Chodesh, there's no Korban Musaf. It's not like the Rosh Hashanah, because you're allowed to work on that day. You're even allowed to plant a tree on that day. But what you re- now realize that in the 12, 1300s, people are debating what is Tu Bishvat. And there's nobody telling you what the customs are. They're, just, they're only dealing with what maybe you can't do. And, and also realize another thing. Fasting and Tachanun are expressions of... Well, fasting is an expression of sadness. Tachanun is a normal day. You don't say it on a happy day. So there's an argument whether Tu Bishvat's a happy day or not. There's an argument about how far you take the custom. So my point so far is absence of information in the mission of the Gemara. We're just told that these are demarcations. It's almost in terms of when you take the truma. That's really all we know about it. It's about the fruits. It's not about the trees. And what we should be doing on that day, we have no information whatsoever. So even though I started with some sources that told me customs, I'm going back and I look in the 1300s, there's disagreement with exactly what the customs are, and nothing's really proactive things that you should do. The question is what you shouldn't do, perhaps. Well, what he's saying is, I'm allowed to turn any day into a fast day. I shouldn't do it on Shabbat. I shouldn't do it on Chag. So now, there's something bad that happens in the community. You know, God forbid there's a war, and the people feel, you know what, we need to pray, we need to fast. And so it's, oh no, but you shouldn't fast on certain days. So what? So Rishchodet, you shouldn't fast. What, what about on Tu Bishvat? Is that a happy day or not a happy day? So what do you see? You see people debating the point, which means they're not sure if it's a happy day or not. Meaning, on some level, what is Tu Bishvat? In, in the earliest strata, what do we see? It's, it's a demarcation about when you pay taxes. I don't know, right? Is, is that a good day or a bad day? When you make the cutoff point, when you pay... You, no, a demarcation. You tax till one point and you pay the taxes for, you know, so that, that's just a break-off, an agricultural break-off for taxes. Is that a happy not? It's neutral. I mean, there should be nothing that... Say, no, but still it's called a Rosh Hashanah and Rosh Hashanah should have something happy about it. Okay, maybe, or then again, maybe not. So that's what I'm saying, is that we look at the earlier strata over here, there's no nothing jumping at us by telling you, oh, absolutely, that... Tu Bishvat is any more than just a cutoff date about when you bring Maser on your fruits. Source 12, we're moving over to the Shulchan Aruch, Tuf Kuf Ayin Bet, and now you'll see exactly where this came from. Tzibor Shebikshu Lugzor Ta'anit Sheni V'chamishi V'sheni U'paga B'ta'anit Tu Bishvat 
So what's it saying? That's the goat mamoniot. So now you see it made its way into the Shulchan Aruch, and the Shulchan Aruch rules that you don't fast on Tu Bishvat. Okay, so far, in terms of authoritative Shulchan Aruch, what do you do on Tu Bishvat? You don't fast. The Ramah adds, Haga, Miu, Mitchilu, Tanot, in Mavsikin, Kemubur, Shkodesh, Fachal, Vacholamod. He goes, on the other hand, if you started fasting, then you don't stop. Meaning, it's not enough to stop a fast if you've already started. So you see that the status of Tu Bishvat is really. Um, not clearly established as some kind of a celebratory happy day. Source 13. Nagusha loli polop nehem bitu bishvat. Lobitu ba'av lobitu bishvat. Here, this is in the laws of Tachanun. Do you say Tachanun? Do you skip it? It's a various list of days that you don't say Tachanun, so Tu Bishvat is thrown in here as well. That is, as far as I know, the full extent of the Shulchan Aruch's treatment of Tu Bishvat. You don't say Tachanun, and you shouldn't fast. But nothing further than that, that means that everything further than that is most likely going to be coming from a later time. Which, of course, then should cause us to ask, well, why does it come at a later time? What, what, what customs don't just happen spontaneously. Something must have caused it, and that itself should be of interest to us. 16 is a book. It's called Chemdat Yamim. Am I once again correct to assume that you've never heard of the Chemdat Yamim? Chemdat Yamim is one of the most debated books that we have today. Uh, I put in I put in parenthesis. Well, I, I wrote that it was published in 1731, and that there's a fellow named Rabbi Yisrael Yaakov Elgazi, 1680-1757, who is apparently the one who publishes it. Even though we don't know till this day who's actually the author, we don't know if it's one author. We don't know if it's a com- if it combines lots of different things. But now I want to go backwards a little bit and look at source number 14. This is the She'elot Ya'avetz. Ya'avetz stands for Yaakov ben Tzvi. This is also known as Rabbi Yaakov Emden. So his father was known as the Chacham Tzvi, and he was the rabbi in Amsterdam. So the She'elot Ya'avetz, Rabbi Yaakov Emden over here, Yaakov ben Tzvi, is uh, talking about something else, completely different, but along the way he's going to touch the book Chemdat Yamim. Now, what do you actually know about Rav Yaakov Emdin. So you know about the diary. You know, you know, but you know about the the part that was censored off of some editions. Very yes. good. So Rav Yaakov Emdin. Um, first of all, he was the kind of rabbi who had a really short fuse, incredibly prolific, owned his own printing press, would publish whatever he wanted to. He caused a war that brought most of the rabbis in Europe into it. He dragged everybody into this war that you either on one side or the other. He declared war on the rabbi of the city that he lived in, who lived two blocks away. Over 20 years, they only met twice. And uh, he accused the other rabbi of being a, uh, a follower of Shabtai Tzvi. The other rabbi, the other rabbi was, Yon- was Rav Yonatan Eivshitz. Okay. One of the things that Rav Yaakov Emden loved doing was um, witch hunts. A witch hunt. He loved He was an instigator. Oh, 100%. So, in the middle of another discussion, he writes, That's a great term. Um, he's attacking the Hasidim, who are a new movement at this point, the Balshem. And he called, means that you're making believe that you're pious. Regarding one of these people who's making believe that they're pious, Shematsa Hashmata, Bisifreha Irha Elokit, Odota Sher Tama Alai, Adam Kasher Holechlutumo, Shalozacharti, Mihanhagat Svirata Omer, Bilel Sheni de Pesach, Acha Kriat Hagadat. Okay, so let me pause a second. I'll at least explain to you what he's talking about. In Israel, <laughs> there's only one Seder. In Chutzlar, it's Yuftu Starim. Rav Yaakov Enden wrote a sitter. 
right? It's, it's an interesting sitter. He wrote a big, fat sitter with incredible commentary, incredibly detailed, and really, really careful about every single custom in it. Somebody calls him on something, says, hold it, in your sitter, when it talks about the second day yantiv, now, let me just pause here, and then we'll get back to the problem, the question, and, and his perhaps surprising response. We count Sphira to Omer on, the, I'm talking about we Israel right now. First day of Pesach comes to an end. Davin Marv, it's about to be Cholomoed. Right? Cholomoed is about to start. And that night you count Sphira to Omer, it's the first day of the Omer. That time, in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, they would actually bring the Korban Omer, they would cut the Omer, the, right, the new grains, and they would bring it. Tradition says barley, it doesn't say it any place clearly, they would bring the new grains to the Beit HaMikdash, and that would allow us to eat from what's called chadash, from the new grains that were growing at that point. There is a thing about saying it as early as possible in the evening. A number of the commentaries bring that. He writes that you should say it by Marv. So one of these mitchas dim is saying, well, don't you know that you should really say it at the end of the Seder? Now, why is this a problem? Because even though we want to say it as soon as possible, but in Chutzlar, it's the second day Yom Tov. And it's like, you can't have the Lel HaSeder, which makes believe it's the first day, and be counting the Omer, which is clearly it's the second day, because this seems to be a contradiction. So therefore, in order to resolve this contradiction, somebody here mentions to him, don't you know there's a custom that you should only say the Omer, or make a brach on the Omer, at the end of the evening. Now, first of all, some of you may recognize it's a really bad idea. Why is it a bad idea? Four glasses into the evening, should I continue on this, or some of you understand where I'm going with this? Four glasses into the evening, you may not remember to bench the omer, to count the omer, to say anything, and there is this thing to do it as early as possible. So somebody called him on this and said, you messed up in your sitter. You messed up in your sitter because you wrote to say it by Mariv, which, by the way, is what we do. And why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you writing down to say it like I've seen at the end of the seder because it's, it seems to make more sense, at least on some level. So he writes over here, that you called me on it, Shelo zacharti min hagat sfirat haomer b'leil sheni de Pesach achar kriat hagadat, that you, you attacked me for not mentioning that you should say the omer after, he says, kalech miderech zeh, stop in your tracks, don't go any further. Chalila al yeichech chelkecha ima somchim al dat kabbalah mechudeshet, mishuveshet. I'll pause here and translate a little bit. Don't go any further. Don't be part of these people. I hope you. I hope you love this. I hope you love this terminology. Kabbalah mechudeshet. Do you realize why that's really an interesting turn of phrase? Why? Because what does Kabbalah mean? Tradition to receive. What is mechud? What is mechudeshet mean? Right. So he. So you realize he's. Yes, you realize he's making fun of the person. He goes, this Kabbalah Mechudeshet, it can't be, a, either it's Kabbalah or it's Mechudeshet, but he's, he's making fun of this. You know, where is this new stuff coming from? Mishuveshet, what does Mishuveshet mean? Messed up. Mishubash means confused. Shehi reshet litzoded nefesh yikarach has v'shalom. It is, what's a reshet? It is, when you go fishing, you put a net. By the way, in Hebrew, the internet, the net, that you say you would say reshet, you would you would use that word reshet. He's saying reshet litzodeid nefesh yikara. It is a net designed to capture precious souls chas v'shalom. So he's telling you there is again. I told you here's a man who loves a witch hunt. He's saying you're telling me that I should be I should be writing the halacha like that. Al yered b'ni imahem. Don't go down that path with those people. The imshonim al and if they do something different, don't get involved with them. Vada absolutely. If this were something that would be worthwhile to be concerned with, hayiti mazkiro, I would have said it. Meaning, like, why? Who are you to pick on? You like you, you like the great great grandfather here? Like, what are you talking about? Hayiti mazkiro, afim shkigiot vashmatot miyaveni. He goes, nonetheless, you know, everybody can make a mistake. Avalzot. Ukriyotseba, asur lahalot al hadat. 
This kind of thing you can't even imagine. And I already wrote it in my sitter, clear for everyone to know that you you make the bracha and you count the om in the beginning of the night. And that's what's written in the tour. We want complete days. We want 49 complete days. So you need to start as soon as possible. If you had to, you can count the whole night. But... Any mitzvah that you, have, that you have the opportunity to do, don't let it slip away from you. You should certainly do a mitzvah as soon as you can. Which means, what kind of logic is this to push it off to the end of the night? This is crazy. Then he writes, he goes, if it's in that book, and that's where this comes from, it's one of these books of the heretics, may their names be obliterated. And so on, so on, and so forth. So he, he signs off. In Source 15, that was in Volume 2, Siman Pei Gimel. Now we have Volume 2, Kuf Chav Dalid. Achein Zuchreini Shebesefer Miram. So I'll tell you the truth. I did not know what that word meant, Sefer Miram. So what did I do? I looked in the dictionary. You know what? The dictionary didn't have Miram. It tried to, it tried to correct it for me. It tried to spell check correct it for me. But I found, if you look at footnote number one there, the Rambam has Sefer Miram, him sfarim sheyeshbem tshuvot neged ha-Torah v'stirala, books which go against the Torah. V'nikra Sefer Miram, inino sfarim ya'akram Hashem v'yisalkam in olam, books which should be wiped out from this world. Miram, Sifrei Miram is really bad. It's saying the books that should be censored, the books that should be destroyed, the books that should be burnt. The Yerushalmi has that terminology, avol Sifrei ha-Miram, so it has it as well. So these are really bad books. Let's go back to Rav Yaakov Emden, Source 15. So now you realize, oh, that's the book we wanted to get to. It's I think it's Biyom Shabbat Kodesh. Shemavrochim Kodesh. Votom Le'ala Glulia. Anybody know what that Shin Tzadi is? Shikutz is disgusting. What's Shin Tzadi? I already gave you enough hints. Shabtai Tzvi. Can we go back a step? He said that there's a Tfilah written in that book which was established. This is very timely. The false prophet who lived in Aza. So who's the false prophet who lived in Aza? No. Shabtai Tzvi had a prophet who lived in Aza. So I hope this is getting a little bit more interesting now. So he's saying that the, that the Chemdat Yamim is a book that should be destroyed. It's a book which has prayers in it written by this false prophet. Prayers which make reference to Shabtai Tzvi. Kimo shekvar hi'aditi ba'am v'he'arti alzot me'az b'chatimat sefer he goes, I don't have a copy of the book. He's essentially saying, I don't own the book. I've seen it because a guest came by the house and I looked at it. I know exactly what it is. Now, just because of Yaakov Emdin went on witch hunts doesn't mean he never found any witches. Quite the opposite. He, and by the way, the whole thing that he had with the rabbi of his city, very good. His son, his son was a follower of Shabtai Tzvi. Um, it was also apparently, apparently some of the kmiot that he wrote. He wrote these Kabbalistic uh, prayers that people would then would carry around with them that some of them may have made re- references to it. So the question is, whenever you have kmiot, how much you... you know, a student here a couple of years ago sent me a picture of his Kiddush cup this week. And inside there were various uh, letters so he says, you have any of what those letters are? So I knew right away what it was. It was somebody wrote a kmiya, 
and with these Kabbalistic names, and he found one of them, he copied somebody, whoever sold the Kiddush cup, and said, most likely to whoever paid for this, this is a Kabbalistic Kiddush cup which will ward off all evil and so on and so forth. Now, most people who are copying these things have no idea what it really means. Jesus, if it turns out that one of the things in that cup is a gematria of Shabtai Tzvi, I would not be terribly surprised because these things happen. People write all kinds of Kabbalistic things. And the other thing that maybe we need to know is that Shabtai Tzvi's false messianic movement was based upon Kabbalistic considerations. So there's going to be all kinds of interesting Kabbalistic things. So I didn't say anything about Tubishvat for the last number of minutes, but what we did see, one second, if we want to go back to our first source, our, really, the Modim Bahalacha, did he quote? Ah, he told us that there is a book called Sefer Priates Hadar. So where, who wrote this book? Where is this book from? Where have we seen this book? And that's going to be part of our mystery. So let's look at now a little bit from, from source 16. This is Chemdat Hayamim. First of all, he starts off with something called Shovavim. Do any of you know what Shovavim is? You don't know. Shovavim. Look, look at source 16. It's a Sefer Chemdat Yamim. The section he's talking about is the section of Shovavim. So you never heard of Shovavim. So Shovavim stands for Shmot, Ba'era, Bo, Bishalach, Yitro, Mishpatim. Those are the Shovavim, which means these weeks that we are right now are the weeks of the Shovavim. So Kabbalistically, and what he has over here are prayers mainly for men to deal with the sins of masturbation and how to bring about forgiveness from it. That's what the Shovavim is. Because what is the word, what is a Shovav? A Shovav? A shovav is somebody who is um, somebody who misbehaves. So shovavim, or is the, is the healing for the misbehaving. So that that itself is interesting. That he has a whole section on shovavim, and then he writes, "Uminag tov lahochim b'tamim laharbot b'perot be'etzamayomazeh." It's a really, it's a good thing to eat fruits on this day. Talking about tubishvat. Now I'm going to already tell you he's not the first one to say it. But he's quoting it. But when you eat fruits, it's really important to say all kinds of she wrote fetishbachot to say things as well. Like I established for all the people who surround me. And so on. Zatzal. And even though among the followers of the Rav, who is the Rav here? The Arizal. Arizal is the most important Kabbalistic person of the age. who was already a little bit before. Well, I'm going to give you a whole timeline soon. And he says, even though the Arizal doesn't have this custom, Nonetheless, it seems to me that it's an excellent, wonderful custom to do. But what does he tell us? That he made it up. Which means now, if you're going to ask me, <clears throat> so where's the source for the Seder of Tubishvat? Well, the answer is, it's in this book, Creates Hadar, which is actually found in the Chemdat Yamim as well. And the Chemdat Yamim, at least according to somebody, it's a book written by followers of Shabtai Tzvi. And over here, they've created new holidays. And by the way, realize something. The followers of Shabtai Tzvi, or Shabtai Tzvi and his followers, tried to get rid of certain holidays and tried to add different holidays. Which holidays did they try to get rid of? Tishabav, which by the way, Shabtai was born on Tishabav. And they try to get rid of Tishabav, and they try to get rid of Shavasapatamos, they try to get rid of all kinds of fast days, but they try to create new holidays, as would any good messianic movement. They need their own uh, new things to celebrate. So, oh, yeah. Well, it was, a hol- it was a day that existed before, but the custom we just now read, you could put two and two together if you want to. We just now read that a certain Rabbi Yaakov Emdin, who maybe doesn't mean that much to you, or maybe you're not, you don't care so much what he writes, but a certain Rabbi Yaakov Emdin said, oh, this book? Just forget about this book. Yeah, I've seen things in this book. Ignore the things in the book. It's not with halacha. It's worse than, it's worse than that. This is a book that should be burnt, and this is a book of the people who follow Shabtai Tzvi, and this is a book which is full of fear. And not only that, the Azati, you don't know who that is, Nathan of Gaza, Nathan of Aza. You can Google him if you want. Nathan of Aza was Shabtai Tzvi's 
prophet who told Shabtai Tzvi that he's Moshiach. So he is the one who made up some of these prayers, and he's the one who's quoted over here in this book. But over here, whoever is the author of Chem de Peyamim, or, I want to be more careful, of this section of Chemdat Yamim is telling you that the Arizal doesn't have this custom. I made up this custom. And I think it's wonderful Kabbalistically and spiritually and so on and so forth. He then goes on to quote a very nice passage in the Talmud Yerushalmi, which may or not be relevant. Ki Yerushalmi perik aseret zal. It's actually a couple places in Yerushalmi. Yishmau anavim yismachu. We can just take a look if we want. Amarav Ivon, Professor Gershom Shalom claimed that claimed that he was manic depressive bipolar, whatever you want, was to be healed. He went to him as a doctor, and instead this guy told him about his own. Uh, oh yeah, I've been having dreams about you. <laughs> well, I've never. Se- well, I just want to mention. I just want to mention, I've never seen any of you get so excited before, so I'm very glad that, uh, that this came up. No, no, but, but again, if somebody's bipolar, when they get, in, when they get into that manic stage... That would make sense. Exactly. You, you, it's not even why are you doing this, because they can't help but doing it. Also, it's not really in their right mind. It's like, oh, let's have fun and see No way. No, no, they're totally manic. Yeah, they're totally manic, and it helps them deal with all of them being down. Again, once you get up, you feel so good about being up because you were down, and it just gives it gives you a reason to live. The fact that you may have messed up lots and lots and lots of people along the way. Well, once the rabbis in Jerusalem rejected, then he made God... So I'm just saying, reading some of this right now just has to be kind of interesting. It's hard to say, but but there were, not that long ago, there were still Jewish communities in Gaza. I'm saying like pre... No, no, but pre-state even. There, there was... A, there were there were all kinds of government offices over there, so there were Jews who were involved in various accounting jobs and others who who needed to do work over there in Gaza. There was a Jewish community there. It, it is really interesting. There's even one of the Zmirot that we sing on Shabbat, which is from a, a rabbi who lived in Gaza. It, it, it was a Jewish. There was a Jewish community there for lots of time. I mean, they they tend to take over more than they destroy. I mean, they, they do both. They claim it's theirs, so it's it's interesting. Anyway, he, he argues to look at the Yerushalmi. So let's just take a look at the Yerushalmi that he was talking about. In Source 17, it writes, Am Rabbi Yossi bar Rabbi Bun, Afasor the Dorbi Ir She'ein ba Ginunita Shel Yarek. You should never live in a city that doesn't have a marketplace where they grow uh, and they sell vegetables, because vegetables are good for you. Rabbi Chisti, Rabbi Cohen, B'Shem Rabbi Rav, Atid Adam Litain Din V'Cheshbon, Al Kol Sharata Eino V'Lo Achal. And one day when you stand in front of God, he's going to ask you why you didn't try different vegetables or different fruits. Yeah, and you should try all kinds of things. So he's saying, oh look, you're going to be judged for not eating fruits. Rabbi Lezer chashash l'adash shemuata, and he was concerned about this. That any time a new fruit was being sold in the market, he always eat it so he wouldn't be judged in front of God. Now, the conclusion for this should be, eat your vegetables. The conclusion for this should be, Try those new fruits and don't be afraid. And this should have nothing to do with Tu But essentially what he's saying is, well, if Tu is the holiday for fruits, and one day we'll be judged for the fruits that we don't eat, so therefore we should be eating fruits on, tishib, on, on Tu Bishvat and make a holiday out of it. You, you realize that there's like kind of a leap over there, and all that I so far did is I kind of put the various steps together, but any custom that I'm aware of, that the first person to mention it is in the Chemdat Yamim, I'd be a little suspicious about keeping that custom. And, and by the way, they could be quoted afterwards by all kinds of people, and maybe we'll go a little bit further. In Source 19, the Muggin of Ram, who is classic commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, writes, B'tu b'shvat Rosh Hashanah li'ilanot v'nohagin ha'ashkenazim laharbot b'mnei perot ilanot. And he says, the Ashkenazim have a custom meeting. Now that was the thing we started with. Why the Ashkenazim? And now look what he writes right afterwards. Tikun, Tikun Yisachar. That's found in a book called Tikun Yisachar. Now, who is the Tikun Yisachar? Source 20. Rabbi Yisachar ben Mordechai, apparently Iban, either Shushan or... It sounds like, like Susan, Susan. 
I don't know how to pronounce it. Right, the 16th century. When he was young, he moved to Tzvat. He was a student of the Levi Ben Chaviv. He was a student of the Levi Ben Chaviv. Bishnat, 1538. And he was the head of the mixed community there. And he was the Roshiva as well. In 1564, his book came out, Ha'oseik b'inyanei ha'luach ha'evri u'v'minhagei ha'kilot ha'shanot b'tzfat. And he writes about the customs of the various communities in Tzfat. By the way, Tzfat had a Sephardic community, literally of people who were chased out of Spain, people exiled from Spain and Portugal, and they also had an Ashkenazic community. So if he writes the Ashkenazim are eating fruits, which Ashkenazim is he talking about? He's talking about the Ashkenazim who live in Tzfat. Very localized, very, very specific. So it's funny that that thing gets quoted. Oh, Ashkenazim, it sounds like all Ashkenazim. No, it's Ashkenazim who lives in Tzfat. By the way, one of the most famous Ashkenazim who lives in Tzfat was the Arizo. Okay, so I think we're getting close to be able to put all this together. This is one of the first places that we find that one should eat Fruits on Tu So here you have a bit more about Yisachar ben Mordechai ibn Shushan, 1510 to 1572. And here is a picture of the book. Um, it also says here right in the middle, So I have to explain that as well about the book. Here's an introduction, Tikkun 1579. So what actually happened is, he wrote a book about the Hebrew calendar. So he wrote what you do on any particular Shabbos. Like this is Parsha Shemot, and this is the Haftorah, and this is, like if there's anything unusual, special or customs, he, he wrote it down. So essentially he was a custom collector. And it becomes really valuable later on in history for people to be familiar with this book. But, 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 so notice he's a student of Rav Levi ben Chaviv, the Rabach. We'll come back to him in a moment. And when he comes to Tzfat, he becomes under the influence of the Beit Yosef. But he also had a hard time making a living and had to raise money to publish his book. So while he was traveling from place to place, he showed people the book. One of the guys he showed the book to published it without his knowledge. Can you imagine that somebody just stole your manuscript and published the book? Just one second. So there is a first edition, and then there is. Then when he got his hands on it, he could not believe that the guy made all kinds of mistakes and published it with mistakes, which is why there's a correction and there is a second edition. And all of this, I have the next couple of pages, are all about the introduction to the book and so on. Um, I'm jumping over to page. Ah, I'm jumping over to page thirteen. This is a photocopy of this book. If you look, it's a little hard to read, right? Look two lines in from the beginning of the line. Second word. Yom echad bo, Shabbat va'era. Yom chet bo, Shabbat bo, paro. Yom tetvav bo, Shabbat b'shalach. So two b'shvat that year came out on a Shabbat. Never on a Friday or Sunday. It came out on Shabbat. So he writes, V'hu rosh Hashanah le'ilanot v'ashkenazim mirabim bo b'minei perot ilan. There you see it. This is the first time that somebody wrote the custom. Now, this is not in the first edition. It's only in his second edition. So I actually gave you like a timeline down over here. Let me just look. Yeah, if you look on page 15, we have Yisachar ben Shushan, 1510 to 1572. Tikkun Yisachar, edi- first edition, 1564, without his permission. He re- it was republished after he died, you see, in 1578. His teacher, Levi ben Chabib, the Rabach, died 1545. 
which means he's 35 years old, and he goes to Tzfat. The Arizal was in Tzfat between 15... Sorry, died in 1572, but only got to Tzfat in 1570. So if the first edition of the Tichun Yusachah was published 1564, it did not know... It did not know what the Arizal did because the Arizal was not known to him because he was not in Tzfat yet. It is possible, however, that the second edition, which talks about what the Ashkenazim do, it is possible. I mean, there is this rumor that maybe the Arizal did this, but that's eating fruit. It's not about saying anything about it. Shabtai Tzvi, 1626 1676. His prophet, Nathan Binyamin ben Alisha Hachayim Halevi Ashkenazi, and by the way, he was also Ashkenazi, not Sfard. He was born in 1643, and Jerusalem died in 1680. Right? Began St. Albert under Jacob. He wrote the Priates Hadar, prayers for the 15th of Shvat. Okay. Now, by the way, all of this is subject to reinterpretation because anything written anonymously, and somebody's assuming, maybe they're wrong. The, the Chemdet Yamim has been going back and forth, back and forth, who really wrote it, and it's really quite... By the way, there are things of Nathan of Gaza in the Chemdet Yamim. It is possible that somebody found a bunch of pages and published it together as if it's one book, but it's not one book. So it could be that there's, a, there's one page in it which is absolutely authentic and real in Torah tradition, and there's another page in it which is absolutely suspect and coming from the Beit Midrash of Shabtai Tzvi. But at least, uh, I'll say this again, any customs which I find there, I, uh, I'm a little bit more uh, suspect. Um, just to see how everything is complicated and convoluted, Nathan of Gaza, who was his teacher? Who was his teacher? It says Jacob Chagiz was his teacher. Jacob Chagiz had a son named... Moses Chagiz. Moses Chagiz was one of the people who joined Yaakov Emden in attacking all of the Shabtai Tzvi followers. One second, to make it more interesting, going back to Moshe Chagiz, he had a, he, he had a son-in-law named Moshe Chayun, who was the father of Nechemya Chayun, who the Chachum Tzvi, of Yaakov Emden's father, accused of being a follower of Shabtai Tzvi. Which means all of this is coming out of really one bait midrash. Both sides of it is really coming out out of one thing. What? I am telling you that as I, I was unpacking and, and like drawing a map in my head of all the players involved in this, it's like there's such a web over here. They're all attacking each other, but half of them are creating the Shabtai Tzvi movement, and the other half are trying to destroy them. And they all know each other. That, that, that's the point. They're, they're, they're all like somehow related and coming from the same place. We're gonna. We're going to. You have a little more. We're close enough to finish. So you have a little more strength or no? You can say no. I'll just do one more. I'll just do one more thing for today. If you go down to source, right after twenty nine, it's on the bottom of page eighteen. There's a guy, and I wonder if he's related to Rav Yaakov Emdin because his name is Zev Yavetz. Rav Yaakov Emdin's book was called Shilat Yavetz Yaakov Ben Svi, and I wonder if this guy took the name from the same because he's from the same family. Um, Zev Yavetz, you see, 1847, 1924, Jewish historian, teacher, Hebrew linguist, he, um, he came to Israel. On Tu Bishvat, it's actually what year, it's not clear what year it was over there, Tu Bishvat, 1890, he was a teacher in a high school. He took the kids out to plant trees. The Jewish National Fund eventually copied it but he wanted them to do something proactive. He made up, he made up planting trees on Tu B'Shvat. 1890, some high school teacher decided to take his kids out and plant trees. Um, later on, it's taken over by the JNF as one of the greatest fundraising ploys in the history of mankind. Oh, we need to plant trees on Tu B'Shvat. Send money for your tree. Buy your tree. Plant your tree in Israel. And this becomes this mega um, fundraising ploy made up by Zev Yavetz, who also, I'm saying, may be a descendant. I, I, was a, I, I checked, but I wasn't able to figure it out. Also, of Yaakov Emdin, and, uh, and here's a letter from Rav Cook. On, it could be. A letter from Rav Cook on page 20, where Rav Cook approves this custom of planting trees, but he's reminding the people, the Histadrut HaMarim, the teachers' union, this is already 
by, uh, by 1924. He's telling this is a great thing to plant trees. I'm glad you do it. It's a wonderful custom. This is good. He goes, but this year is Shemitah. You shouldn't be planting trees during Shemitah. And please don't plant trees this year. So it's an interesting letter where he approves of the custom, but he says not to do it. Anyway, should we just wrap up Tubishvat now? As, as, I said for the, as I said for the beginning, there's a custom on Tubishvat to eat fruits and to plant trees, and it's a holiday for the trees, and we plant trees. Well, planting trees in see was made up in 1890. Eating fruits, you see, comes from the Tikkun Yisachar. Um, having a Seder Tubishvat may very well come, apparently, the author of the Chem Yom says he made it up. That very, very mel- very well may have been Nathan of Gaza, that particular section of the Chemdat Yamim, which means it may very well be a custom. A custom. Eat fruit. It's a nice thing to eat. And now the funny thing is, but a lot of people would eat dried fruits. All the dried fruit comes from Turkey. So therefore, eating dried fruits to get. It, because, because you couldn't get fresh fruit in Europe. People read the Muggin of Rome, eat fruits. What fruits? So they had to eat dry fruits. So the dry fruits, people would make believe it's coming from Israel. It was coming from Turkey. So anyway, you now know more about Tu Bishvat than anybody you know. The only question is what you do with all of this information.